the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm an India. And we are your theory doctors. Hello. Hello. Welcome back. It's been a long time. It's been a very long time. Far too long. We've hit our three-year anniversary this month. Yeah. Uh, but I think one of those years, we've been on an extended hiatus. Yeah. What happened? Well, a lot of things happened. I think the, f- the first thing that happened was the sort of combination of world events got to us. It became very difficult for us to imagine reflecting on and discussing them in detail. So we retreated. We retreated into our caves Mm. um, and I think watched a lot of Netflix and played a lot of video games. And um, You've done a lot of uh, trips back home to India. Yeah, one or two. Um, and uh, there's been some some illness, which we'll get to in mm. a few weeks. <laughs> uh, yeah, nothing serious, but it's just been busy time with the world and work and life, and we let this drop a bit. But hopefully, we are now back and will be back. Be back for for a good. While. Sometime, yeah. I think too. We didn't expect. We didn't expect ever. I think to get over a hundred listens on SoundCloud, and we didn't yeah. expect people to continue liking our social media pages yeah. even when we were on our hiatus. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. they may or may not have been, you know, bots, but we'll never know. Yeah. Um, and we yeah. are. We're really grateful for the fact that people continue to listen Absolutely. to our back catalog Absolutely. and. Um, when we first took it on, I don't think we expected that three years later we would be sitting doing it still. No. On which note, what are we talking about today? A really happy topic today. All our topics are very happy. <laughs> we are known for happy topics. Bring in the joy and the cheer. Today, uh, th- this is a topic actually that... that kind of intersects with both our research interests but also um, very much with our personal lives and our family and um, India and Pakistan are currently engaged in a conflict a series of conflicts a multi-led conflict both actual and proxy through social media and bombs Yeah, so a bit of background for those of you who haven't been following the story. Um, I mean, India and Pakistan have been at various stages of conflict for 70 years uh, more. Um, This particular iteration started on the 14th of February. Today is the 28th of February, by the way, so that's... Uh, that's where we are. Things might change by the time you listen. Uh, on the 14th of February, there was a terrorist attack on uh, a group of Indian army soldiers 
40 soldiers were killed in Pulwama in, in Jammu and Kashmir, Indian administered Jammu and Kashmir. And as a result of that, India launched what is known as surgical strikes. And you can't see me doing scare quotes, but I am. We'll come back to that, that use of language in a second. Um, and the surgical strikes were apparently attacks on terrorist base in Pakistan. Conflicted reports of how many casualties uh, were a result of those, those um, uh, bombing maneuvers. Uh, yesterday morning's news was Pakistan closing its airports, India suspending some flights out of Delhi, and a general sense that the airspace in and around the border was being cleared of civilian aircraft. Uh, there's been uh, an Indian Air Force plane that was brought down by uh, Pakistani Army. An Indian Air Force pilot is allegedly a prisoner of war in Pakistan. Uh, reports as to his status and condition vary. Um, and all of this is in the context of upcoming general elections in India, which should be happening sometime later this year. Um, the Indian government, under the leadership of Prime Minister Narendra Modi, uh, was it was looking, according to some polls, like he was losing support. Uh, and there is a general sense that this uh, might rekindle support for him uh, in the in the upcoming elections. Is that a fair summary of what's happened? Yeah, because, I think so. Yeah. It's um, it has a, f- a feel of the the kind of beginnings or sort of an outbreak of conflict, yeah. but it also has a feel of engineered conflict that's more kind of sort of media Mm. produced than Mm. real in some ways you know there's a lot of especially today uh it it takes longer to appear in my social media feed because i'm less my my social media bubble is less south asia entrenched Mm. um whereas for you you have more family Mm. and and more friends Mm. there um but it's appearing on my feed more and more in the last few days and some of the the things, the kind of items that mm. appear, mm. either as links or as images or as videos or as statements or whatever it is, memes, mm. are really sort of the waters feel really muddied, mm. and it's mm. it feels as much an information war as anything else. Mm. Kind of debates about you know the actual the actual locations of of India's surgical mm. strikes and where where things ended up, you know, all sorts mm. of, of um, narratives at play. Mm. Um, it, it makes it very difficult to to piece back together what has actually happened yeah. versus what people are saying happened. Yeah, you, um, and, I mean, you know, you said uh, earlier on that all of this is very close to our, both of our research. Um I've been, for the last few days, I've been um, proofreading um, what I'm hoping will soon be my book on partition. Uh, there's a bit in the book, towards the end of the book, where I talk about um, particular names and signs, bits of language that's sort of our legacy or, or crossover from before partition and, and can uh, therefore still 
function as a kind of imaginary South Asia that wasn't partitioned as it were. So jute mills in West in what is today West Bengal, named after rivers in what is today Bangladesh, or uh, businesses in in cities in Pakistan named after places in India or, or vice versa. And one of the examples I use is a is a chain of bakeries called Karachi Bakery. Karachi being a city in Pakistan, the chain of bakeries uh, across multiple cities in India. Um, and while I was proofreading this particular bit of the book, uh, my Twitter feed showed a news story of a particular branch of this bakery in the southern Indian city of Bangalore, Bengaluru, um, where a group of nationalist people, I guess, uh, mob, uh, entered and uh, forced the owners to cover the sign, Karachi Bakery, and to put an Indian flag on top to demonstrate that they were, they were sufficiently patriotic, even though they dared to name their, their bakery after a city that's now in Pakistan. Um, I guess that the point of that telling that story is that this is very close to both of our day jobs and uh, uh, we both have a lot emotionally, intellectually, practically um, invested. Yes. I have a student uh, who's thinking about writing on partition and um, writing on, on partition narratives. And whenever, especially in geography, where there is less mm. kind of work done and there's less of a sort of coherent scholarly story mm. around the geography of partition. Um, I find myself justifying mm. why I study a kind of decolonizing process on the other side of the world and why I do that without very many kind of interlocutors in, in my discipline mm. And my student was, was kind of talking to me about this as well, about, mm. you know, who else in the department they could speak to mm. and where else they, they might want to go for literature. And um, we were talking yesterday and, and I said, you know, ultimately when we come to justify why why this this question matters and why it should matter for geographers is, is because of what's currently happening. Mm. And there is a constant kind of reminder, there are many reminders of, of the partition moment, but also mm. the the sort of pre-partition, pre-independence kind of promises of, of what a post-independent mm. subcontinent could look like, mm. and um, it, it's it's in a sad way, it's a sort of continual reminder that that I will always be able to justify why mm. I study what I study, which mm. is a um, that sort of internal conundrum of being an academic. Mm. Um, but it's, it is quite painful. Um, it's, it's extremely relevant. The border questions I find really interesting and we haven't talked that much mm. yet about the border, but the, mm. the relationship between the terrestrial, like territorial border mm. and the airspace mm. is, is one, um, that it gets written about a bit, um, certainly in a sort of trite anti-Trump mm. wall sort mm -hmm, of way mm -hmm. you know planes can fly over a wall mm. um, planes can fly over a border um, mm. it, it is actually technologically possible to mm. cross a border and has been um, since we discovered mm. we could walk mm. on two legs mm. Mm. and um, it the the kind of relationship between the language of of airstrikes and we'll talk more about surgical strikes I think mm. that's where we'll mm. go next 
um, airspace and mm. the the kind of um, I guess that the, the three dimensional space above the, the border itself becomes kind of a, an, a plane mm. on which nationalist imaginaries have um, been written. Um, the, there's something about the the surgical strike. Mm. And the imagery, or the kind of lack of imagery, mm. imagery of the strike itself, and mm. and the airspace that um, is quite interesting. Geographers write a lot about like drone strikes, mm. and they mm. talk about the view from above, and they talk about the you know the cartographic gaze and the god's eye view mm. and that kind of thing. Um, but I think there's something else going on as well here mm. that isn't just isn't just that. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I guess, most, if not all, war, uh, rests on particular, I mean, particular conceptions of identity, and, and more specifically, particular conceptions of national identity, right? So, um, my social media feed, which is skewed heavily towards, towards Indian Twitter, if you like, Indian Facebook, or, or India on Facebook and Twitter, and so much of the language is about uh, defining a particular version of patriotic nationalist Indianness, uh, which will never question whether it's on the right side, is clearly Hindu, uh, Hindu dominated, but I'd prefer the sort of a, a Hindu version of nationalism. Uh, it will never question whether Kashmir might or might not be an integral part of part of India, in but will never allow Kashmiris full citizenship of India, as it were. Uh, an Indian chief minister of an uh, Indian state uh, publicly called all Indians to boycott Kashmir and Kashmiris, while claiming that India is should be able to go to war to defend Kashmir as an integral part of India. Um, there is a, a, a clear inflection through various forces uh, that come to define what what India sees itself as. So the, the social media war is inflected through things like Bollywood, particular Bollywood films, particularly jingoistic nationalist Bollywood films getting uh, quoted and cited and, and memeified, if you like, in order to, to to justify and support the troops. Cricket gets involved. Does India play Pakistan? Should India play Pakistan? What might it imply to want to play Pakistan at sport? Uh, how far do you go in order to justify your right to play sport as in and of itself as a right? As And, and at what point does that mean you get labelled anti-national. Um, and all of these questions are questions that appear to have obvious natural answers because if you if you ever question the answers to any of these questions, then you're an anti-national, you're un-Indian, you're unpatriotic and you're not supporting the troops. Uh, you are giving in to Pakistan, you're giving in to terror, Pakistan and terror being equated as as part of the same thing, um, and then all of that get used to define 
India and Indianness in oppositional terms, right? So you are you are Indian to the extent that you hate Pakistan. You're Indian to the extent that you are active in your opposition to terror. You're Indian to the extent that you support troops. Uh, and if you don't do any of those things and aren't seen to be doing any of those things, if you aren't seen to be physically, visually demonstrating your your loyalty, then you are anti-national. You, you don't belong to the nation anymore. Yeah, there's a bit of the Bush doctrine yeah. there. Yeah. If you're not yeah. for us, you're yeah. against us. Yeah. Um, there is a bit of... I think we've talked before about the sort of contemporary, and I mean contemporary sort of the last mm. 10 years mm. of, of Indian political history, yeah. it comes about very much as part of a wider war on terror um, discourse. And obviously the United States is, is most famous in terms yeah. of its contributions to that. Um, but India also has been very active as well mm. in um, in feeding, constructing, mm making use of war on terror discourse mm-hmm. as well. So, mm-hmm. um, again, there's a sort of India-America connection here that mm. um, and it's, is it, very clear. It's a connection through language as well, right? So we, we, we spoke a couple of times about, about the, the language of war. So India India uses words like surgical strike as as a euphemism for aerial bombardment or, or war or, you know, whatever the whatever the, the equivalent might be, in the way that America uses words like extraordinary ambition rather than using yeah. words like torture. And surgical strike, the, the whole yeah. drone program was yeah. was um, justified using the language of, of surgery and medical mm. metaphors. Mm-hmm. And the surgical strike means that there's less collateral mm. damage, and in particular, less collateral American yeah. damage. You know, pilots mm. are no longer required to conduct dangerous missions they can mm. do it from afar mm. but also children are less likely to be mm. caught up in mm. a um kind of a more wholesale bombing of mm. of a region mm. somewhere over there yeah. is the kind of the yeah. the spatializing yeah. of it um but the the surgical metaphor and the surgical strike mm. implies precision mm. um and it implies expertise and it implies a sort of focus in its targeting, mm. um, it, it, mathematical yeah. targeting. It implies sort of moderation, doesn't it? It implies yeah. sort of rationality that we are being reasonable and moderate in seeking to uh, achieve our military goals with as little collateral damage as possible. Whether that's true, of course, is a is a completely different question. But I guess one of the things I'm interested in is quite how this this perception of rationality or this um, uh, alibi of rationality is seen to work both in terms of sort of those who support the war and those who are act, sort of actively anti-war in terms of the the proxy social media debate um, and and the way rationality gets deployed in both senses, right? So uh, there is um, a, a line of argument that says India has to defend itself against acts of terror, Pakistan is causing acts of terror or supporting acts of terror, therefore it is perfectly reasonable for India to bomb Pakistan. That's one deployment of rationality. There is another deployment of rationality with which 
we might have more sympathy which uh, I've said this before Modi's in power elections coming up Modi's popularity is going down Modi manufactures a war in order to win an election it's sort of the wag the dog narrative if you know the film wag the dog uh, where a, a war gets constructed a media war gets constructed in order to win an election which is also a, a rational uh, position as it were uh, making making a rational decision for the necessity of war. There is also another um, another way in which rationality gets deployed, which is uh, the BBC is doing a lot of describing the the situation in India and Pakistan as saber rattling, mm-hmm. right? So the sense that both India and Pakistan know quite how much is at stake when given that they're both nuclear powers. Uh, Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan made the statement where he said, you know, we can't afford misunderstandings, we can't afford miscommunication when there is so much at stake because we both have these weapons that could destroy ourselves and each other. Uh, and there is a, a, a quite a, a significant discourse, I think quite, a, quite an optimistic discourse that says, you know, India and Pakistan will go so far and not go further because they both know what's at stake and they'll threaten war. They'll they'll play at war with a few few bombs here and a few strikes there, uh, but they won't go all out because the nuclear deterrent on both sides is enough to keep the balance of power. All of which assumes rational rationality at the heart of decision making. Yeah, and that the state functions like a rational individual. Yeah. Um, that kind of classic Dick Cheney way, yeah, of, way yeah. of thinking. And of course, if if the last couple of years have taught us anything about international <laughs> politics it yeah. is that uh, the sort of rational outcome that everyone expects no matter how wild yeah. and out there the build up to it is yeah. uh, things will things will always move back towards kind of normality and the status quo we know that that is not necessarily the case mm. and um, I think we have learned that seemingly or seemingly kind of um, irrational bits and pieces moving towards a, what, it, what will ultimately be a rational outcome is a hope, mm. but not a given. No, and we can, I mean we can see sort of normality changing, right? We can see the normalization of of things that a few years ago wouldn't have necessarily been seen as normal. I mean, I've keep going back to the kind of rhetoric uh, I'm I'm seeing on Facebook and Twitter about. You know, otherwise apparently rational, reasonable human beings talking about, you know, being proud to bathe in the blood of terrorists or being happy to pay extra taxes if our money is being used for something as rational and reasonable as aerial bombardment against an enemy country. Um, yeah, there's a similarity to, I mean, last summer the and uh, last fall, yeah. a lot of the kind of support on social media for uh, the Trump administration setting up of temporary camps yeah. in which to yeah. house child migrants. Yeah. Um, th- there was a, a normalization of that yeah. very quickly. Yeah. Um, uh, despite the fact that there, there are images, yeah. you know, plenty of images yeah. th- that came out of those sites um, that 10 years ago mm. would have been considered outrageous. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, of, of the images of Abu Ghraib, for example, yeah. and, and mm. just what that did yeah. to the Bush administration's um, extraordinary rendition yeah. and, and torture policies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there is absolutely a, a dramatic shift in mm. what we consider to and, be normal and acceptable. Yeah. And, and, that's, and, and you, can, you can absolutely see that at work in Kashmir. I mean, I don't know how, how qualified I feel to date a shift uh, because that normal has been normal in, in Kashmir for many, many years. But certainly what is perceived to be rational and reasonable and, and a, uh, a justified response on the part of the part of the Indian state. So, uh, for example, in there have been multiple articles uh, from both within the subcontinent and, and outside identifying uh, what the Indian army is doing in Kashmir as... A ma- the largest example of mass blinding uh, through uh, through particular technologies of defense and containment and um, and policing, uh, but that is seen as valid and proportionate because Kashmir is seen as the source of um, terror that that is affecting all of India. Um, across India, they've 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 been photographed recently of shop signs saying, you know, dogs allowed in here, but Kashmir is not. Um, um, all, all, literally, I mean, across the entire North Indian belt and further down south, uh, stories of Kashmiri students being attacked, Kashmiri professionals being lynched. Um, there's a, there was a story of a cardiologist of Kashmiri origin in Calcutta who, uh, announced that he was going to leave West Bengal because his children were being victimized in school, bullied in school because they were Kashmiri. Uh, so you have this, by by any quote-unquote normal, reasonable uh, standard, completely unjustified and unjustifiable behavior being accepted as either reasonable and rational and normal in and of itself or an understandable overreaction when something as horrible as 40 soldiers being bombed is happening. And I, I think that the, the value of life, as it were, where it doesn't matter how many hundreds and thousands of anonymous Kashmiris are being disappeared and murdered up and down the country as soon as you have something identifiable that our soldiers, our being Indian as opposed to Kashmiri our Indian soldiers are targeted and then all bets are off and anything is acceptable after that because we have to be seen we have to be seen to act There's high theory for this Go on then (laughs) (laughs) Here it is. It's in our name. We do some theory. So here it is. Um, A very, very famous 20th century philosopher that we've talked about before, uh, Hannah Arendt and the banality of evil. Um, She she became uh, kind of repopularized after Trump won Mm. the the 2016 election in the United States. Um, A lot of people kind of 
we're throwing around words like fascism and totalitarianism and she is is the kind of 20th century commentator on 20th century totalitarian government and fascism and mm. um, how governments that use a kind of kind of bureaucratic systematic state constructed forms of violence um, come into power, how we allow them to come into power, how they con construct themselves, how they reproduce themselves, and ultimately how they are dismantled. Mm. And um, totalitarianism became very popular. Uh, it sold out for the first time <laughs> on Amazon, for example. Um, but she, you know, coins this phrase, the banality of evil, and the banality of evil gets taken up later by mm. uh, by theorists and philosophers who work with it later. And we will talk about mm. um, Giorgio Agamben, who very famously kind of expanded Hannah Arendt's ideas um, in a later episode, mm. I think next week. Um, but the banality of evil is this idea that, that what, in certain contexts, we would consider to be unacceptable. Yeah. Um, forms of violence... Uh, you know, some might call them, you know, violations of human rights or use a kind of language of human rights or whatever it is. But but ultimately, you know, physical or psychological mm. violence against individuals, communities, groups, um, any sort of other becomes not only kind of normal on an individual level, but becomes a part of state policy and the kind of practices mm. and day-to-day -day operations mm. Mm. of the state. And she, of course, was working... Uh, post-Holocaust, post-Nazi Germany. She very famously wrote about um, Eichmann in Jerusalem mm. for the New Yorker magazine first and then expanded those ideas. Mm. Um, but it's essentially the idea that um, that violence becomes normal mm. um, and part of our daily lives. Mm. Mm. And her quote here that, that we've pulled, uh, you know, it's neither perverted nor sadistic, but terrifyingly normal. I think she's describing Eichmann yeah. specifically in that quote, um, and it's the and it the the reason we've pulled that particular quote is that it it seems uh, to describe the banality of so much of the nationalist discourse on social media, where you can take a particular uh, example of a propagandist Bollywood film about India responding to acts of terror and pick up particular quotes from the film, turn it into a hashtag and celebrate, and I, I use the word specifically and precisely, celebrate these surgical strikes as, as you might celebrate your country winning a, a sporting match, for example. You know, it, it becomes that level of glorifying, explicitly glorifying violence because it allows you to position your nation and yourself as superior, stronger. Uh, it allows you to recognize and respect the so-called sacrifice made by the, by the armed forces as, as an example of martyrdom in the, in the service of the nation. Uh, which uh, demonstrates to you the the superiority of your nation as opposed to the the one across the border. Yeah, and a kind of 
at a more kind of individual level, it's there's a, an element of identity formation yeah. that goes on. That's an internal mm. process mm. Um, that's deeply kind of psychological and emotional. Mm. Um, some might liken it to a spiritual process. Mm. Um, it, it's it's interesting. Um, I've never really put together in my mind the connection between the banality of evil and Benedict Anderson's imagined communities um, in mm. so stark a way. But mm. he talks about, and there's lots of kind of post-colonial critiques mm. of, of Anderson's mm-hmm. work, you know, that the post-colonial, a post-colonial nation like India mm. is fundamentally kind of, you know, different from mm. a, a mm. former imperial nation like mm. Britain or mm. the United States mm. or a currently imperial nation like Britain or the United yeah. States, you yeah. know. And, um, b- but there, there is some really interesting kind of cultural work going on in India and Pakistan. And, he talks about the nation as a fundamentally cultural construct. It tends mm. to be theorized in more political terms mm. or economic terms, but as a cultural construct, the nation is quite powerful. Mm. Um, and you talk about sort of the cultural uh, elements of a nation, mm. sporting matches, mm. um, films, mm. television shows. Um, music. Music, mm. absolutely. Mm. Um, art. Mm. And the, the kind of cultural facets of a nation mm. you know he ties to things like language he ties to things like shared uh religious practices or mm. or mm. kind of shared ethnicity mm. but in fact um those differences of those sort can be overcome mm. using kind of cultural artifacts or cultural yeah. techniques mm. and there's something really interesting here about the imagination via cultural production that allows and, and anderson talks about this mm. that allows one to go to war on mm. behalf of that community, that imagined yeah. cultural mm. community, mm. that shared identity. Mm. And he says, you know, go to war and, and die for the nation. Mm. But also I think there's something else as well that you mm. are you might not be willing to go to war and die, but you are willing to send others that you have mm. never met yeah. to go and die mm. for your country. Mm. And that feels very banal. Yeah. It is evil and yeah. banal. And and in that and this is this is this has been spoken about before and this is part of a social media discourse as well uh, in the the hierarchies between the you who doesn't want to go and fight yourself and the people who you are prepared to send uh, in the particular context of India and similar similar forces apply apply elsewhere the the, the people who are sent to fight are typically poorer uh, lower caste marginalized in various ways uh, as you used as cannon fodder in the service of nationalism and capitalism uh, in in order to in order to fight quite literally fight to defend the system yeah um, and I just want to pick up one thing that you said and the more I think about it the more I I'm, I'm sort of really not convinced by a lot of the post-colonial criticism of Benedict Anderson mm-hmm. in in that I don't buy the separation of the post-colonial nation-state as fundamentally different from the ex-colonial or, or neo-colonial or currently colonial nation-state. Yeah. Um, it just lets us off too easily. It lets those of us who identify with the post-colonial nation-state uh, because we can so easily say Kashmir, India, Pakistan, partition, the war today is a result of British colonialism for 200 years. 
And of course it is. I mean, there is clearly a colonial connection. But it just, you know, what have we been doing for the last 70 years? It's the... the, the, the <laughs> Nation building. Yeah, and, and, and it, the, the culpability of the post-colonial nation-state in carrying on precisely colonial activities, for example, India's relationship to Kashmir, India's relationship to the northeast of the country, uh, what the British Anand has called post-colonial informal empires, uh, is a much more colonial model than anything else. Um, keep saying, you know, the, the British taught us and we were very good students. Uh, and the more I think about it, the more I see continuities as opposed to uh, disruptions in terms of the near the the ex-colonial nation and the post-colonial new nation. Yeah, I have mm. I, I I have have found that kind of in my work that some of that the the post-colonial critiques of people like Benedict Anderson because imagine communities appeared in the nineteen eighties. Um, about 10 years after Orientalism appeared. Um, and so it, it came out of a different time. But yeah. interestingly, I feel like Imagined Communities has aged quite well, mm. um, it, unlike some other theories that mm. came about in mm. the kind of 70s and 80s. I think Imagined Communities has, has sort of reappeared. And oddly, one of my students was was mentioning this, that Imagined Communities is not particularly well cited mm. as a text, as mm-hmm. a source, mm-hmm. um, as, a, as a piece of high theory. Um, it's not written as a high theory. It's written mm. as a case study um, by an anthropologist, mm. not by a philosopher. Mm. Um, but it's not particularly well cited, but it remains central mm. to th- our ways of thinking about the nation state, especially people who use concepts like culture and identity to talk about political practice mm. and, and kind of more political mm. notions around sovereignty, etc. Yeah. Um, and I think the imagined community is, is alive and well. And it, I do think it takes on various forms. So I think mm-hmm. the Indian form and the Pakistani form and the kind of post, post-colonial British nation states have a certain flavor that isn't necessarily equivalent to the American forms of nationalism Mm. that we also Mm. see. But at the same time, there's something going on um, that that is worth examining in detail. Um, Can you talk a little bit more specifically about the social media and memification? Because I think... um, for people who aren't who aren't kind of actively engaging with what's happening on social media, um, to kind of talk about where they might go to to see. Yeah. Kind of so if you um, there's a Twitter hashtag house the Josh. So that's J O S H Josh, a Hindi word meaning strength, spirit, I guess. And that's a quote from uh, a Bollywood film called Uri U R I which is a film about a terrorist attack and the army's response to it. Uh, and there is a scene in the film, I haven't seen the film, but I've seen clips of it. There is a scene in the film where uh, an army officer shouts, how's the Josh? And the, his soldiers say, hi, sir. Uh, as in, the Josh is high, the strength is high. And this 
this got turned into a hashtag which uh, you know if you go on Twitter and Facebook and search for the hashtag you will see an, a, a huge range of responses uh, patriotic nationalist responses uh, of people who support the quote-unquote surgical strikes uh, the support India's attacks on on uh, apparently terror bases what they are are not as uh, is impossible to say in within the airspace and land space of Pakistan um, without ever I mean it, it we need to bear in mind that the, the proof that India has provided that any of these terror attacks were actually sponsored by Pakistan uh, is minimal at best right there's there is and and to say that is not necessarily to say that there isn't there aren't forces within Pakistan that support terrorist attacks they, they may well be it's just the apparently rational response that we've been talking about that we've been identified identifying on social media is not based on any kind of rational evidence uh, because it doesn't need to be right it's it it becomes tautological because you you start from the from the assumption that Pakistan is supporting terrorism, and then the fact that there is terrorism in India becomes proof that Pakistan is supporting terrorism, mm-hmm. uh, which is exactly the same as as the the logic for the the Iraq war, right? You know, it's it's that that tautology of you 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 assume what it is you are going to prove, and therefore your assumption is the proof. Uh, and um, uh, much of the much of the social media presence, uh, certainly the, the 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 social media discourse that is supporting uh, military activities, is marked by that. We all know this to be true, and therefore it is true. And because it is true, this what we are doing is justified. Yeah, it's a kind of. I mean, obviously. Tautologies like this one have, have existed far longer than than two thousand one, mm. but the the specter of the the war on terror mm. is mm. here. Yeah, um, it it continues. Yes, and I'm I'm safe in saying that it will continue, and we will revisit this topic again because the world will give us more material to talk about. Indeed. Good. Well. Uh, hope that was of interest. Feel a bit rusty. It was our first yeah. episode in a long time, but hopefully there's there's stuff there that's of interest. Uh, we'll include the references to the texts we've spoken about in the in the description, so you can go over and read it if you'd like. Um, let us know what you think. Uh, comment, send us messages, um, tweet at us, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you.